Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we explore cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with scientists, physicians, and clinicians about cannabis and other psychedelics. We are back for season three, and the show is continuing to evolve. I really believe in taking a holistic approach to understanding cannabis and psychedelic medicine, and all of the elements matter. Everything from the soil and the pesticides used to cultivate plants, to how these medicines affect our body chemistry, to the set and setting in which we use and integrate this medicine and these experiences. I've been listening to your feedback, and in this upcoming season, we're still going to be digging into the chemistry and biology of these plants, but we're also going to be spending more time exploring the psychological realm so we can better understand how these medicines affect our brain and our behavior. So stay tuned. I really hope this season pushes the edges of how we understand cannabis and psychedelic medicine. As always, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on Instagram, cannabis underscore science underscore today. Um, Also, I'd love to hear from you via a five-star review on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. And finally, if you have any guest suggestions or you just want to say hi, you can email me, cannabisciencetoday at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm so excited to share this upcoming season with you. Today, our guest is Dr. Amanda Kahn, who is a clinical psychologist working in private practice in California. Her research aims to elucidate how trauma impacts our bio, psycho, social, and spiritual suffering, and what kinds of novel and non-traditional approaches can be viable for treatment-resistant trauma. She offers ketamine-assisted therapy, evidence-based PTSD treatments, and post-psychedelic integration sessions. There's a lot of research indicating that a range of psychedelics from MDMA to ketamine to ayahuasca can be very therapeutic when it comes to treating trauma. But sometimes what misses the headlines is that this can be a very complex and delicate process with a lot of nuances. It's usually not quite as easy as just taking the medicine and really requires a lot of intention and preparation and integration. In this episode, Dr. Khan shares her knowledge from the clinical realm, and we really go deep in how we can use psychedelics safely and effectively to treat trauma, whether it's post-traumatic stress disorder or moral injury or the everyday painful experiences that we have that leave an impact on our psyche. Well, Dr. Khan, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. And you are a clinical psychologist working with patients in California, and you also have this research interest in psychedelics. So tell me more about your background, your work, and and what piqued your interest in this field. Yeah, yeah. It's so good to be here, Emily. Um, Thanks for inviting me. Um, Yeah, so my background, I have a PhD in clinical psychology, and, um, you know, I sort of have a specialty in working with trauma, and mainly that looks like working with folks who um, are struggling with PTSD or depression or moral injury, complex PTSD. Um, And I also, you know, collaborate and do research as well. Um, Yeah, so my, what piqued my interest, you know, I think it's funny when I was thinking about this, I actually like was really afraid of psychedelics when I was young, you know, I was definitely, um, 
someone who was like smoking pot and like experimenting with things, but psychedelics always scared me. Um, I was sort of afraid to have that, that bad trip, you know, that got so much, uh, attention. And, but then when I got into graduate training, um, I was fortunate enough to end up working in a ketamine clinic. Um, one of the first ones actually, uh, in at mass general hospital in Boston. And it was working with folks who had received, um, IV ketamine and, uh, you know, unbeknownst to me, I was actually doing integration. <laughs> I didn't have like language, that language at that time, but I was delivering CBT, um, to folks who had had um, treatment-resistant depression and high, high suicidality. And through IV ketamine, all of that lifted. But then there was, you know, decades worth of disability um, to sort of pick up um, back on. You know, people had to sort of clean up their life again and, and um, start moving forward. And so there was a lot of work to be done. And so that was what sort of originally got me interested in, in psychedelics. And then, and then I got connected to, to maps as an independent contractor, you know, as a grad student, my uh, stipend was not high. And so I was looking for ways to uh, get more money. And I found out that I could do diagnostic assessments for, uh, for maps on the phase two and phase three trials. And, so then I worked uh, as an independent contractor with them for four years on those trials. And that really started to spark the interest and, and make it feel more, more deeply rooted. And um, then I moved to the Bay for my residency. And that was, that was kind of the final straw because <laughs> the environment there is really one that's uh, very supportive of, of these uh, approaches for, for healing. And so um, just getting more into the community. And then I had uh, a mushroom meditation retreat experience that, that really catapulted me towards getting very serious about getting training. And so then I did some ketamine assisted training with Polaris Insight Center in the Bay. I left my diagnostician role with MAPS and completed their um, MDMA assisted therapy training. And now I work at uh, Sage Integrative Health, which is a Bay Area holistic psychedelic clinic and in private practice. And I'm also uh, being trained to be a psilocybin therapist on the phantom limb um, pain clinical trial at UCSD and continue to do research with some of my collaborators. So I think for me, working with so much trauma um, over the years and really seeing how, of course, treatments are helpful, but there was just so much that we weren't able to touch uh, that I really started to believe in in being able to leverage medicines to sort of have people be able to, you know, experience a catalyst that would really shake things up so we could try and do some deeper work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, there's so much research coming out now and there's so much anecdotal conversation that psychedelics are so useful in treating um, different types of trauma but before we go too far down that, that rabbit hole, could you explain to us what, what is trauma? And of course, you know, we all have trauma in varying degrees, but how do you differentiate between post-traumatic stress disorder and moral injury um, and perhaps even other categories of trauma? Yeah, such an important question. Um, you know, so there's the, the DSM definition of trauma based on the criterion A of the PTSD diagnosis. And so, you know, according to that, to count as a trauma, the experience needs to involve 
perceived or actual life threat or serious physical harm. And so that can include things like sexual assault and car accidents and life-threatening illnesses. Uh, but, you know, in my opinion, I think this requirement really um, artificially excludes many other common traumatic experiences, uh, including emotional abuse and neglect, you know, moral injury stemming from our actions or inactions, betrayal and institutional trauma, racial or discrimination related trauma, collective trauma, intergenerational trauma. So to me, how I define it is that trauma is something that that really profoundly changes the way that we think about ourselves and other people in the world and how we behave or move through the world and how we relate to others. So, you know, when it comes to trauma can lead to like many different psychological and spiritual and physical struggles, right? And so there's, there's many disorders that are in fact trauma related, right? If we look at some of the research, like people who have you know, eating disorders, people who have depression, X, Y, and Z, there's, there's a higher rate, higher prevalence of trauma. Uh, but the one that's obviously most clearly connected, according to the DSM, is, is PTSD. And so PTSD is an official diagnosis in the DM, DSM, and it, it has very specific criteria and requirements that establish a threshold, basically. And so those can include re-experiencing symptoms, um, avoidance, negative alterations in, in you know, one's mood and one's thinking and hyperarousal symptoms. Um, but moral injury is not a diagnosis. And in fact, a lot of folks in the field uh, believe that it should never be a diagnosis. Um, and there's also no consensus on even the definition of moral injury. Mm -hmm. How do you define it? Yeah, so for me, you know, I, I generally understand it to be the bio, psycho, social, spiritual suffering that stems from, you know, doing, participating, witnessing, or learning about events that transgress one's deeply held moral beliefs. You know, that it's, I don't, I don't know that I have like a symptom list necessarily, but just that there's the, this big suffering that happens on multiple levels of an individual, um, you know, coming from these experiences and it's, it's very frequently co-occurring with PTSD. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and so there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of overlaps. Um, but I, I do think that there are, there can be some distinctions. Um, and so what, basically what I think I've noticed is that with moral injury, there's, there's not a fear conditioning basis to it necessarily. Like obviously certain events can that are moral injurious can involve life threat and can include a fear conditioning component. So this again, is not meant to be um, exclusive language, but there's not really a fear basis to it. Moral injury tends to be more rooted in um, just like deep shame and guilt. Uh, so like to give an example, uh, whereas someone with PTSD may avoid going to, let's say a family reunion um, because of, you know, fear of being in a crowded place and then, you know, fear that something bad would happen or that escape wouldn't be possible. Someone with moral injury stemming from perpetration, let's say, would avoid the family reunion or may avoid the family reunion because they feel that they're a monster and they don't belong or they don't want to endanger others with themselves or they don't feel 
that, you know, they deserve to have a family. So it, it, it tends to have a little bit of a different quality and a different function to it in my experience so far. Yeah, I think that's a, it's, it's a really important distinction, especially when it comes to, okay, well, how do you move through these two, you know, respective experiences? Absolutely. Yeah. They're, and they're, they're so complex, you know, obviously mm-hmm. the range, the range is very uh, large and the level of nuance is um, always one that, that keeps me humble, you know, and there's, there's so many more diagnoses, you know, in the DSM or even the ICD 11 that are trauma related, you know, complex PTSD, borderline personality disorder, dissociative identity disorder. So there's a lot of differences in how the trauma ends up manifesting in a person. Mm -hmm. And what is the difference between treating a patient and whether they have PTSD or experiencing moral injury? What is the difference between treating a patient through this, the traditional talk therapy model or maybe cognitive behavioral therapy versus the psychedelic model? Yeah, yeah. I guess for, just to clarify, I don't think there is a psychedelic model, I think, or at least a single ruling one. Okay. Um, At least not at this point in time. I think psychedelic assisted therapy is sort of a a (laughs) non-denominational, non-dogmatic approach in a lot of ways. And, you know, each provider can sort of deliver this mode of treatment uh, within their existing theoretical framework. So like, I, I know providers who, who do CBT in that context. I know others who will like, you know, do shamanic psychotherapy and yet, you know, others who do, who take like a Jungian approach to that work. And so um, I think there's, there's not one specific model or ruling, ruling framework necessarily, at least at mm-hmm. this point, you know, these, these things haven't been tested yet. Um, and I think, with talk talk therapy, I'm assuming that just means non-CBT. Am I getting that right? I've never totally understood that phrase. Yeah, well, I guess I, okay, so, so I, I'm not the expert here, I guess, but I have had, um, I, I guess I look at talk therapy as maybe more like psychoanalysis, mm. uh, psychoanalysis. So, you know, a lot of focus on the family, a lot of focus on the upbringing and the childhood and the wounds that um, generate there. And then cognitive behavioral therapy and kind of looking at more um, how, you know, how, how, how our brains are, are wired to, to think about ourselves, but this could just be my, my projection. This might not be a very official psychological differentiation in the literature. Yeah. You know, I think the, I, I don't definitely in the literature, that's not uh, a phrase that's used, but I think that's definitely like a, you know, a, a lay term that's used. And so whenever someone comes in and told, tells me they've had talk therapy, I'll usually query a lot because I have no idea what that really means to that person. And so, you know, I think when I think generally based on like the, the MAPS training, right, which is so far the most legitimized therapy protocol to date, right? Because they've, they've actually established a ther- an assisted therapy format and they've published their manual like on their website. And so um, there definitely are pieces that are, are different from CBT approaches. And that that's largely like believing in a person's innate healing wisdom you know, sort of minimal or low interpretation, uh, incorporating spirituality very explicitly in, you know, in the, in the setting, and then uh, also incorporating consensual and ethical 
touch as a as an option. Um, but I think the the therapies are are not also so different at the same time. You know, both both CBT and the maps and sort of related approaches both provide psychoeducation. You know, granted about very different topics, but <laughs> both provide a psychoeducation. Both can include restructuring. You know, when it's appropriate. Both can include skill building, you know, like a lot of integration work and, and prep work is actually skill building, you know, doing parts work, um, doing meditation practice, um, taking, you know, lifestyle changes, self-care, you know, versus, you know, in CBT, the skill building is around challenging thoughts. Um, and I think both, I know CBT gets a bad rep and it's, it's not the style I would necessarily say that I subscribe to, but I think both do value the therapeutic relationship. they both approaches understand that the relationship is important um, in order for the treatment to really, um, you know, have, have maximum benefit. So, you know, every practitioner varies a lot too, and how active they are during sessions across, across all forms of therapy. I know CBT therapists who really take more of a passive role in the process. And I know others who are very active, but um, you know, just generally speaking, the role of the therapist and, and psychedelic therapy can be less active, um, partially just because, you know, practically speaking, people can't talk when they're on the medicine right. and they're, they're, they've got headphones on and they have eye shades on. So there's like one aspect where like, it's, it's actually a little impossible <laughs> to do talking. Um, but also because I think that, that innate healing wisdom ingredient does tend to be you know, there, at least in the MAPS protocol. And so if we take that stance that, um, that every person has what they need inside of them, that whatever comes up is coming up for healing and to trust the process, then yeah, the therapist is going to be less active, less direct, and less in the role of fixer and helper versus witness and holder which I think yes. where you can see it. And, and I, I actually find personally like a, a lot of great relief in that. Um, you know, I don't have to come up with the deepest insight they'll ever hear to somehow magically alleviate their deep suffering. You know, I trust that the medicine and their own psyche will do that work. And I'm just here to make sure, you know, that we don't get too far of course and, you know, to provide a corrective experience for their individuation process, their healing process. Yeah, I really appreciate this response because I think previously, up until recently, I was very much, uh, well, of course, I'm very pro-psychedelic and that's why I have this this podcast, but but I, I had kind of always seen from my experience and witnessing people that it's just like, a psychedelic experience, it could be, you know, five years or 10 years of therapy in, in one mm -hmm. session. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very um, extreme, you know, it's, it's extreme, but sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's true. But I recently had an experience witnessing someone who had um, an ayahuasca experience and it was just, it was too much. It was very overwhelming for their nervous system. It was too much. Um, they, and they weren't really able to, they just didn't have the capacity for that experience so now I think I'm almost kind of seeing the value of all, all of these different therapy models and all of these different ways that we can go about healing rather than just being, you know, just looking at the psychedelic model in kind of this more extreme, uh, more effective version of these other, other ways of looking at our, you know, looking at our trauma, looking at our pain. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's that's such a great, I'm so glad you got to witness that because it, I think it's, you know, it's really different when someone has been working on themselves for a long time, they don't have a lot of symptoms or anything else going on and they do this medicine and then versus someone who's been in, in a deep trauma state for a long time. And that nervous system, you know, is, is always an extreme in one way or another. And so jackhammering through that, you know, with a psychedelic is, is definitely not always indicated and in fact can be contraindicated. And, you know, I definitely work with a lot of folks who come in and they're like, I want, give me the big doses. I want to like get rid of this ego. Like they just really, really want to throw away this part of themselves. Understandably, that's like been suffering for so long. You know, they want to hurry up and heal. And what, what we really need to do is slow that down. You know, that's the response and, and actually build some internal resources, some, you know, I'll incorporate some somatic experiencing stuff and some parts work to really have them start building that relationship before they go into that psychedelic experience. And sometimes we'll do that for two to three months. And then they're in such a good space that all of their parts, you know, are sort of ready and on board to move forward. And then we start very low, we start low and slow, and then we build up from there because we want we always want it to be consensual. And I'd much rather have someone feel disappointed with me at the end of the session that they didn't have enough of an experience than the other way around that we flooded them, that they went in overwhelmed. Because mm-hmm. for me as a trauma therapist, I'm always thinking about like, how can I, how can I not re-traumatize? Yes, yes. No, I, I, I agree with that completely. And I, I do think, you know, because there is kind of this fragmentation between um, of course, there's these, you know, these maps, research studies, and there is a research happening, but still a lot of, you know, a lot of people are using psychedelics in underground ceremonies or on their own with friends. And there isn't necessarily kind of that person who's guiding the journey. Mm-hmm. And I do really want to talk about integration. But as you mentioned, there's also almost this like pre-integration period. It's like preparing that soft landing pad, like that feather bed that you can land on after the experience so that you're prepared to integrate what comes up for you rather than just expecting the medicine to just do all the work and almost like shoot you out of a cannon where you're, you're just not ready for it. And even though you could be in this place of, of openness, it it might just, it might not work as effectively than if you really do that pre-integration work and you're ready for the medicine. Absolutely. Yeah. In the end, yeah, for me, the, the goal in therapy, the goal in healing is, is individuation. And if we, you know, um, uh, resource out (laughs) our individuation process to the medicine, then we're missing out in my opinion, you know, so actually having them feel that they're more an, an active driver of the experience leading up to the dosing session, I think tends to, tends to make a difference versus, you know, going in and, I've definitely worked with folks where it's just sort of like, yeah, I don't know. Like when asked, like, how will you know, you know, if the medicine's working, how will we know, you know, if it's, if it's working, it's like, I don't know, I'll just know. And it's like, okay, well, let's see if we can make that process a little more active. What in your life will be different, you know? And so really sort of bringing them more into that conscious responsibility, taking individuation process. Mm-hmm. And also being prepared for what the medicine does bring up, because I think it can bring up some, all of these different um, repressed experiences or emotions that are just 
hidden in the psyche. And, and then when that, if that does come up, which can be a very, very positive thing for someone's overall healing journey, but are, are they prepared to work with that? Are they prepared to, you know, how, I hate to say the word bad trip because I, I do believe that there aren't necessarily, well, there can be bad trips. And if you're just not, if your nervous system is overloaded and you go into fight or mm-hmm. flight, but I do think, you know, not every experience with psychedelics we're going to have is going to be love and unicorns. I think it does bring up these, it does bring up these repressed, these traumas. And that's what's so beautiful and important about it. But we have to really create a, a container for people to actually be able to process these. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, first of all, I really want a, a trip where there's unicorns, but um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I haven't had that yet, but now I'll hopefully plant the seed. And um, yeah, I think a lot of times for me, when, when there's complex trauma involved, uh, as counterintuitive as this may sound, an overly positive experience can be just as painful, actually, if not more. Um, so when we experience these positive things and we've got a complex trauma background, you know, what I often see is a regression after that. First, it may look like someone really throwing that experience away. You know, the next morning we're doing integration and they're just throwing the whole thing away. It didn't matter. It wasn't real. There's like just this like interesting not keeping it. Right. And and it's because when we confront, you know, positive experiences and we have a complex trauma background, it reminds us of all the times we never had that. It reminds us of all the times we didn't feel loved, we weren't cared for, we didn't feel like we belonged and that we're one with the universe. And so there can be, you know, there can be this regression that sort of happens. It's a good regression. Like I sort of view it as like two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. And so overall, we're actually stepping forward. Um, but we, we really, it'll keep you on your toes as a therapist, definitely, when someone has a very positive dosing session. And then the next day, they're just like throwing everything away and feeling deep sort of fear and they're maybe even pushing you away, you know, because of the closeness that you experienced during the dosing session. And now that closeness was absolutely terrifying, right? They hadn't had it in so long. And so understandably, there's a little bit of a course correction that happens uh, within the nervous system. Oh, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. And it's almost like, I think sometimes the psychedelic experience is very, it can be very like heart centered or, and then there can be this aftermath of like the brain explaining that away or the, the brain. It's almost too much like vulnerability to, to manage like once you're not in that state anymore. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the nervous system with, with prior experiences, the nervous system was either love was either paired with harm, you know, from like a caregiver. I love you, but here's the abuse. I love you, but here's the neglect, you know, or it was just never there. And so it's very painful to receive because the nervous system has never received it before. Yes. Okay. So it sounds like in the, th- like your role as a therapist is to help them be able to open themselves up to that love that they might experience for the first time through the medicine. Yeah. But in a very titrated way, you know, I think that's, mm-hmm. if I could summarize one learning point of all of my clinical work over the past years, it's that I need to titrate my warmth, um, that warmth, too much too soon is overwhelming. It floods, you know, it feels uncomfortable. Many, you know, a, a light version of that is like, you know, if, if you receive a compliment, maybe that feels sort of uncomfortable and you sort of want to be like, oh, well, you're great too. You know, you sort of want to put it back. I love your right? shirt too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's like a little bit of this, not letting it land, right. Yeah. Not letting it penetrate. And so 
you know, when we're working with complex trauma, um, that system, you really need to titrate that warmth. And I've definitely learned that the hard way where I've rushed in with warmth and care and it's been too much, you know, I've needed to back off and allow, allow, you know, you know, small talk and, um, you know, jokes and not, not always going so deep and allowing, allowing neutrality to be there and for sort of them to come to me. And when they do offering something, but having it be bite size, you know, and so then increasingly having them come out of the cave, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, so I do want to quote something, and we're already in this conversation, but I, I want to quote something you wrote in an article um, regarding psychedelic-assisted therapy that I thought was really poignant. And you said, much like how the body's cells know what to do when a physical wound happens, the psyche on psychedelics appears to be naturally directed towards the wound, towards confronting suppressed traumatic material and limiting self-other concepts in need of healing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm wondering, I think this is, this is so interesting too. And, and you had already kind of mentioned that in a psychedelic assisted therapy session, a lot of times the patient is lying there, they have their eye shades on, they have the music. Um, and that has been kind of more of the MAPS model, but, but I wonder in the future if we'll see other types of models as well, like that doesn't necessarily have to be the only way we use psychedelics, but um, yeah, kind of based on this, if the, the medicine is working and if we're working with this framework that the medicine knows exactly what it needs to do, um, what is the role of the therapist and, and how, how can the a therapist be this effective guide um, actually during the trip? Because, I mean, we have so much else to, to unpack, you know, for the integration. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so big. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, that I'm maybe going to be annoying today because I feel like every question is just so much depends. It really all depends, you know, it depends. Mm-hmm provider. It depends on the context that they're working in. It depends on the medicine itself. And it definitely depends on that unique patient, you know, where they are in their life and time. And so, um, you know, just speaking for myself personally, I, I conceptualize my role. I mean, even that actually is it also somewhat depends on if someone is coming to me for adjunctive therapy, uh, meaning that they already have an outside therapist and they're just coming to me for a course of ketamine assisted therapy. Um, or if it's someone I've been working with long-term and we're weaving in psychedelics now. Um, so for the former, you know, when they have an outside therapist, I see my role more as like, um, more as like a container and a guide for the experience. And so I'll consult with their outside therapist and work with them in tandem, you know, as I support the person through the series of, of, of experiences, you know, prep dosing and integration, um, all the way through to the end. And so I, I, I just try to focus on getting to know the person and, um, building trust and getting a sense of the past experiences that are, are likely to show up in one way or another. And, you know, generally during Ketamine, the communication's pretty reduced while they're in the medicine space, but um, that's also not always the case. I've had folks talk the whole time, so you really gotta uh, stay on your toes. <laughs> and um, with MDMA, you know, there can be a lot more talking involved, obviously. Um, but you know, and I'm you know still in training for psilocybin, but my understanding so far of working with that and a dosing session capacity is that it's, it's a little bit of an in-between space where there's going to be not as much talking as MDMA, but uh, not as little as ketamine perhaps. And so 
again, I think it's really um, variable based on individual factors. Um, so generally, like if there's if there's a lot of talking, you know, I may strive for balance and invite a person to go back inwards, uh, you know, after a period of talking to sort of see what else is there. Um, and then with the latter situation, when it's a person that I've been working with long term, I feel like I, I define my role a little bit more like, um, you know, container guide and therapist. So I, I may actually be a little more directive or active with my responses, like trying to leverage basically the alliance that we've built so I can um, really, you know, foster a deeper experience for them. And then I don't know that I have like exact recommendations for what, you know, what therapists can do to be an effective guide. But I think generally doing your own medicine work um, is to me very important to, to go through the experience yourself and to know what it feels like and to know if you would have wanted someone to talk to you or not. And um, yeah, just feeling into that whole experience, I think is, is very highly educational. And um, beyond that, I think, you know, obviously general clinical competencies like ethical behavior and cultural competency are always going to be there. But I also think generally an effective guide is one who knows how to step back. And I think that's probably the most important part of being a guide. Um, you know, as a therapist, I, you know, I can speak at least personally as a therapist, I can want to rush in, right. I can want to fix or alleviate or ground a person. And, you know, there's definitely a time and place for that in psychedelic therapy, because I say those things aren't, aren't needed, but I think mostly it's about allowing the person to have the experience and um, not inserting your own you know, your own caregiver needs into the experience. And so that, I think that would be my, my top recommendation if I could make one. And, and so that includes, you know, not, not dictating the session in any way and not asserting your interpretations upon the person or their experience. Yes. Yes. No. And I, and I appreciate how these answers are so nuanced because there isn't absolutely, there isn't one single guidebook of, of how to be an effective guide in these situations. Of course not. Um, but, I, <laughs> but that, that obviously wouldn't be therapy. Uh, but I, I do wonder too, you mentioned, um, and we had another, another guest who, who talked about this as well on the show um, about the MDMA sessions and how, you know, MDMA as a substance, it really does like create, it, it is more, well, at least in the way I've experienced it, it, it does really create these strong bonds, like this strong feelings of love and connection for people and even strangers. So, so she had explained that actually sometimes in the MDMA sessions, um, that, you know, the patient will just rip off their eye shades and just want to talk and just want to bond with the therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah. So I think it is also interesting to kind of, yeah, look at, well, all of these different medications are going to um, be, you know, they're going to require different levels of, of interaction or guidance. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's people who, you know, become dissociative and suicidal while they're on MDMA, you know, and that's the shadow material that's coming up. And so there's, there's generally a trend towards love and, and that sort of connection space on MDMA. But, you know, when there's a lot of complex trauma in there, it, it's, it's not always that, you know, there can mm -hmm. be actually a lot of darkness that can be there. And so I think 
staying, just staying on your toes, you know, staying wise to that, what's happening in, in that person who's sitting with you right now is really your best bet rather than assuming that, you know, what's going to happen in that session. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners have had psychedelic experiences outside of the clinical realm and outside of this protected container, you know, where you're able to manage the titration and you're able to, um, you know, make sure that they're ready before they have this experience. And, you know, and these can go in many different directions. So the direction that I had, that we had talked about briefly, you know, where it's too much, it's overwhelming for the nervous system. They're not prepared to receive um, what the medicine is, is giving them. And mm-hmm. then they can kind of go back to these, whatever, you know, whatever their early, earliest coping mechanisms are. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also kind of the other end of the spectrum of the experience. Maybe it was a positive experience. Maybe they had fun, but, but it didn't really get to their, their trauma at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder what is, you know, what is the um, and knowing what we know that, of course, people are going to probably continue to use these, these medicines outside of this clinical realm, how, how do you set up an intention to, to use the experience to um, really look at your trauma and start the healing process? Do you think this is something that we can do in these experiences without a expert guide and and what steps can you take prior to the psychedelic experience during or, or afterwards to, to, to use these medicines to heal? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So many big pieces here. And again, it's always going to be so medicine and person specific. Um, So I'm going to do my best to generalize though. Um, So, you know, my, my personal practice approach is to support a person in identifying an intention. And usually I'll provide some psychoeducation about how, you know, we don't want to set expectations about how we want it to go or have a desired feeling, you know, outcome, you know, I want to feel bliss, you know, like that's probably not a helpful intention to set. Right. And rather I'll sort of encourage intentions to be maybe in question form. So like, you know, what are the barriers to loving myself, you know, or be curious about, you know, um, or, you know, how they want to approach the experience itself. Like, you know, the classics, like surrendering, letting go, being curious, being open. So, um, I'll generally work with someone over a few sessions to see if, if there's an intention that calls to them, um, while also weaving in the message that like, you know, in the end, we want to hold our intentions lightly. And whatever arises is what needs to arise for healing, you know, regardless of its shape, form, texture, color, right? So I don't think I would ever put, I wouldn't want my patient um, (laughs) to put that pressure on themselves to get to some sort of root of trauma, you know, to sort of ensure that the experience happens, even though, of course, this is actually like what what happens in reality that folks come in with this pressure that they put on themselves. And it actually happened uh, this week during one of my sessions. And I, you know, I, the person was in internally, you know, after I found this out sort of after the fact, but they were internally like putting this pressure on themselves to get to the root of their PTSD and, and grief in the three hour time slot we had scheduled and oh, wow. you know, their experience was just blocked the whole time. And so through supporting this person and allowing their frustration to just be there, just total frustration the whole time, 
eventually towards the end of the dosing experience, they got to this point where they just totally gave up on the experience. And at that exact moment, they went in and they went very deep into the second experience. And so, you know, I, I think it it just shows that like when we try to want or try to make something happen at a certain point, that's actually us being blocked. And I, it's a lesson that I think we all learn over and over again. Like we can say, okay, let go trust, but like, that's, that's an experiential learning, you know, like for me, I always, I'm like, Oh, I, you know, want to do deep healing and like, I'm just going to surrender to the process, but I have this sneaky agenda of deep healing. And so there's this, this like sneaky control factor that's there. And so, you know, all lately I've been really just sort of encouraging play. Like, Mm -hmm. can you approach this experience, you know, just with play and what would that be like to just sort of not have any, any healing intentions involved? And it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but it ends up actually deepening the process. And, you know, a lot of times people will have deeper experiences when they let go of their agenda to heal. So I think, you know, that's, that's one you know, it's not to say that like, you can't not want to heal. Like, of course you want to heal. That is so human. Like we all want that. Right. But, um, you know, we can get in this sort of like sort of self-violence, self-improvement space where we need to like find out this route and get it out, get rid of it, get, you know, make it stop. And so that can really end up, um, blocking the richness of the experience in a lot of ways. So Yes. Yes. I I love this answer. And it's so interesting because I actually, when I was first looking at your research and, you know, writing these questions, um, I, well, I just, I had, I just had an ayahuasca experience between writing these questions and between having this conversation with you. And now I'm reflecting back on this question and I'm like, no, no, (laughs) because in the ayahuasca experience for me, I, it was like my, my conscious mind, not the whole time, but, but what you're saying, like when you finally get to the space, I finally got to that space of surrender, but I was in my conscious mind. Like I, I would be getting a vision or I'd be getting a message. And then my conscious mind would be like, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? How can we use this? How can we put it into our life and it was just such a classic like overachiever like he, trying to heal when the, and not really being present in the experience not really not really truly surrendering to it just wanting you know wanting to to bring it into my life so so quickly and so easily so yeah absolutely I think it you know it comes down like as a as a patient myself and as a healer you know like we all I want the people that I work with to feel relief. I want them to love themselves. I want them to see how amazing they are to connect with higher meaning. So like, yes, I absolutely have that agenda in my heart, but I strive to not insert myself into their process. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if we can, if I can just learn and maybe others as well, I don't want to speak for <laughs> others experience with this to, to do that too, to like recognize the humanity in your desire to feel relief and to love yourself and to, uh, connect with higher things, but then also not having that be, be led, you know, in, in the, um, in the psychedelic journey, I, I think we can get, um, a, a lot more, um, a lot more from our experience. You know, I think a lot of times too, if we are going in with that agenda and we do confront traumatic material, there may also be a lot of joy and lightness or fun, like you know, sensuality or sexuality things happening on the side, but we ignore them because we're so, you know, narrowly focused on the traumatic scene or the traumatic material that's coming up during the journey. So I think, 
you know, having that playful sort of intention in some ways can actually help provide a more robust and complex experience rather than maybe a more singular experience. Yes, yes. And I, and I do think a lot of us are drawn to this kind of work because, you know, we want to we want to be better. We want to heal. We want to be better humans. We want to be better partners or family members or whatever it is. But but then the irony of that is that we already, you know, we don't need to we don't need to be better. We we already are. We already have this inherent like worth and value and beauty as we are as humans and sometimes we can kind of almost like apply how I see it is almost like apply these principles of like capitalism like you need to be more beautiful you need to be more fit you need to be wealthier to to the spiritual path of like you need to be more healed you need to get rid of this trauma and and then we kind of end up missing the point absolutely absolutely it's it's terrifying to realize that we don't have to do anything yes that's the scariest thing to fully surrender and to fully accept ourselves exactly where we are and as we are Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So holding space for the previous question and, and all the complexities here. So there are no easy answers here. Um, so, but, but a lot of these psychedelic experiences, even though we might not address our trauma, um, if we do have wonder and awe and connection, um, would you consider that like a healing experience? Do mm-hmm. we actually need to have a psychedelic experience? Like for example, if you had a patient who maybe had been, experiencing moral injury and and they were able to have this experience like some medicine was able to really show them like love and awe and connection and that they belong Mm -hmm. but it doesn't actually you know there's no experience there's no flashbacks there's nothing um in there that really addresses the trauma could that be just a powerful healing experience in itself yeah i mean there's there's definitely there's no rules you know i think i think where science can go wrong is that, you know, in its best intention to help us talk about these things, it it creates a lot of artificial boundaries and, uh, and rules. And so, you know, I think for some people, yes, we, they need to talk about the trauma for others. Absolutely not. And for others, it's somewhere in between. So I, you know, I think it's, when I think about healing, like, for me, I'll ask a person, what does healing mean to you? What would that look like? How would you know if you were in a healing process? You know, and I, for me personally, I don't, I don't think healing is like a thing that happens and then you're done. It's not, it's not this finite thing. It's just your forever life. That's it. It's, it's just that, you know, it's you continuously moving in some sort of direction that feels like you are becoming more of your authentic self whatever that means for that person. Right. So I don't think it needs to be, you know, any, I don't think the experience needs to be any particular shape, size, form, color, duration, intensity in order for it to be healing. It's, it's up to the person, whether they understand it to be a healing experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, yeah, I mean, it almost reminds me of like something Gabor Mate says, which is like, you know, the, that it's it's something along the lines of like, what was traumatic wasn't the trauma. Like what was traumatic is like what happened after it. Right. And so, um, I think if, if someone hasn't had the experience of feeling love and feeling connection and because after their trauma, they were left alone, they were abandoned, they were gaslit, you know, they were blamed, then that absolutely can be a healing experience. It's just about whether that person understands it to be that for them. And, 
whether they understand it to be that for them is going to unfold over their entire lifetime. So. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm going to read another quote from you. Um, And this is actually very similar to what we were just talking about, but you, you wrote much of current research is an exemplar of thoughts of attempts to pinpoint what's wrong in this person's biology, thinking, or feeling that leads them to be this way, rather than searching for and acknowledging the larger truth that often trauma is a form of societal abandonment. Mm. And I, I love this because I think, you know, we don't do, we don't heal in a vacuum. We don't just have, we don't just have a psychedelic experience and then that's it. Like we heal in relationship, we heal in community with other people. So uh, I'm wondering, yeah, if you could just like explain, you know, just expand on this, this idea a little bit more and, and what is the role of community when it comes to healing trauma, healing addiction, healing depression, and how could psychedelics and community intersect to kind of change this current model of psychiatric medicine? And then there's also just another layer of this that's just coming to me now of, um, you know, of course, when a lot of these medicines, and, and I am thinking specifically of ayahuasca, how, how they've been used ceremonially, ceremonially for hundreds, thousands of years, but they're always in these very, they're always in these containers of these civilizations um, where people have a lot of support and a lot of community. And, you know, in, in these villages, people aren't necessarily abandoned um, or, or it's very unusual from, from what I understand, you know, even someone who might be, who might be classified as mentally ill or a psychopath, like in, in Western society in the U S that they would still find a role for them. I'm not saying that this is perfect or that these other villages, but they're just kind of more containers, um, where, you know, obviously we're putting these really powerful molecules into, um, this world that we live in, that's very sporadic and unpredictable. And we don't necessarily have these like tightly woven communities in villages and, um, so, yeah, so I'm wondering how, how can we use these molecules? How can we use these medicines um, in, in an effective, or how, what is the role of community in, when we use these medicines? Yeah. Okay. So let's see. I'm going to say, no, I asked you like, eight uh, no, that was good. <laughs> they're, they're all related. You know, I think that's, that's why it's all flowing together. So um, yeah, the quote, I mean, that was definitely a bolder opinion to have shared with the public. <laughs> But I think, you know, generally, like, so psychiatric research tends to look at things across like three levels, right? So risk factors, direct causes, and then these like maintenance factors, these things that like keep the diagnoses alive, so to speak. And across these factors, you know, psychiatric research will look at like genetics and physiological functioning and biomarkers, like, you know, heart rate variability and inflammation and personality traits and emotion regulation tendencies and levels of negative affect and all these things. And like, of course, all of this is informative and certainly play roles, but usually it's also not too surprising either. And, you know, the actual explanatory power tends to be pretty low, you know, so like, Oh, here's a research study. Turns out people with depression have a high propensity for ruminating about past negative experiences. Okay. Well, Sure. Like that, that feels sort of obvious. Right. Right. So me, I think where it's sort of in line with the types of trauma we talked about earlier, that seemed to be like left out of what gets to be counted as a legitimate trauma. I think what I was trying to say with that quote is that what 
I think tends to be ignored in the research um, and in society and in practice, you know, is that is how society holds trauma and how it holds the people involved responsible, how it hold how it responds to the people, you know, the person after the trauma. And yeah, it, it really reminds me of that Gabor Monte quote, you know, were, were you left alone after your trauma? Was your trauma denied? Were you comforted? So to me, the social communal response, um, that can really seal the trauma into a person's psyche in ways that, that tend to not be helpful, you know, that tend to result in a lot of psychic pain. And so I think, you know, this is why the therapeutic relationship is conceptualized to be its own medicine, to be so important, right? Because it's meant to be a corrective experience for the communal response, you know, and and that's characterized by like actually bearing witness and providing a safe and validating space so I completely agree with you. I think the role of community is, is quite essential to healing and, you know, time. And again, like you said, it, it, it shows us that in a lot of ways, we can't heal in isolation, we heal in community, not beside it. So, you know, relationships and community, they give us the experiences we need. They, you know, what are the experiences after the trauma that we're missing? Um, you know, and, and maybe that's being heard, being validated, accepted, being grieved with being celebrated, being nurtured and needed and wanted. And so, you know, I think most often across the people that I've worked with, there's a really deep seated feeling of not belonging. And, you know, we all know this too. It's not something that's out of reach from the conscious mind in any of us, right? We, it's it's not surprising. We, We know that we feel this way. So, you know, from my eight years of working with trauma victims so far, I see how being together in, in these ways, you know, of being needed and, and heard and et cetera, really allow for shame to melt, um, for, for guilt to become adaptive rather than destructive, you know, for sadness and grief to be something that actually bridges and connects rather than disconnects. And I, I think it helps anger um, burn out into forgiveness and freedom. And so I think for me, psychedelics, um, they, they can get at these pieces, these, these really traumatic consequences of trauma, these being left alone, you know, being, being gaslit, you know, having their trauma denied and whatever <clears throat> through their abilities to create like mystical experiences of oneness and connection to all and nature and deities. I think they're such powerful catalysts for realizing that we're really just all in this together. And, you know, it can really illuminate connections um, that maybe, you know, the depression may have been saying there were none, but actually there were some in your life. You know, it can increase the tolerability of connections, you know. So like we were talking about earlier, that sort of um, that discomfort with with warmth. So it can help increase the tolerability of connections when, you know, maybe for PTSD, you know, PTSD may trust and intimacy unbearable. And so serving as catalysts to remember our greater meaning and our purpose, why we're here, you know, which is unique to each person, of course, but I I think they can, they can just really serve to, to foster an internal um, sense of self and sense of connection and and remind people of how precious others are to them too. You know, I think when we confront the death and ego dissolution experiences and psychedelics, um, and then we come back to this realm, (laughs) 
there's sort of this increased realization of just how special the connections we have are to us, you know, and I really hope that psychedelics can, can change the psychiatric model towards one of more collective feeling towards group ceremonies, you know, group liturgies and where we all sort of bear witness to people's pains and the experiences they have, you know, rather than just like watching a Netflix movie about it, crying for a little and then moving on, you know, like actually bearing witness to the truth um, through, through reality rather than through fiction, I think is, and I love fiction. It's highly useful. So not Mm -hmm. to throw out fiction in any means, but, and then, yeah, with regards to, um, I, I don't know if you've seen the documentary crazy wise, but your comment about ayahuasca like really reminded me of that film. Um, it's I haven't really, seen it. Oh, it's so wonderful. And it has Gabramante in it, of course, but they, they talk about this in the film, this sort of Western model of mental illness and particularly of serious mental illness, <clears throat> like psychosis and how, just absolutely differently. They would, um, people who experience those things would be responded to and treated in other communities, how, you know, there's, there's context for when that happens. And so when it happens, you know, you're viewed as having special gifts in fact, and you're, you get treated with more reverence, not less, right. In our community, people with serious mental illness have less dignity in our community. Right. And it's, absolutely heartbreaking you know we can't we can't look at it it's hard for us to make contact with that mm-hmm. in other communities they're they're treated with reverence more reverence they're they're viewed as wise and they have people who have similar experiences support them in in understanding that experience and sort of being able to grab it by the reins and use it for good right and so i think um you know it just speaks to the critical importance of community and the same thing is true for for moral injury with um you know with people who uh, warriors who, who go to battle and like our society is not is not set up for that you know we have we don't have mandatory service um and so war is very far away to a lot of us it's this thing mm-hmm. over there and then people come back and there's no context for these people when they come back yes. you know they're, they're saving the very society that ends up rejecting them that they feel they don't belong to because we can't sit with the truth of what they had to do. Mm -hmm. And I think with the deep feeling, as you mentioned, the psychedelic experience, it can really create this profound appreciation and gratitude for the the connections and the relationships in our lives. But there's also uh, the potential experience of having, you know, having this really intense psychedelic experience and, you know, going to the other side, like, essentially experiencing death or experiencing these really intense things. And then going back to your life and, you know, your, your friends can't relate to that. Your, your family can't relate to that. And and there can kind of be this isolation where you, you can't, you know, you can't necessarily communicate. And, and of course that's completely different. And, and I'm not trying to be reductive of the, your, your example too, with um, people who go to war and then they come back and they're, they can't talk about it. Their families can't understand but I do think, yeah, there's such an important element of, of course, you know, um, our personal relationships, but then also just creating community for people who have shared similar experiences. Like we, we need that support. Like we have to, we have to be, we have to be seen in our experiences. And sometimes it's just too challenging to, to talk to that about people who we can love deeply, but don't have shared common experience. 
Absolutely. I mean, I'm so grateful for these peer-led integration groups that are, it feels like just there's so many available. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful for that because we we need those for this exact reason, that there needs to be a place where other people who have you know similar experiences can go and talk about them together, where they can try and make sense of what happened and what they how they want to incorporate that into their life, you know, either through their own understanding of who they are and what they are and why they're here, or you know, how they want to be in this world with other people. Mm-hmm. And are those integration sessions only available to people who did the map studies? Oh no, there's um I, I mean there's there's peer there's peer um, integration groups just everywhere online. I think if you even go to Eventbrite and just type in, you know, integration group, there's like a ton that show up that are, are peer led. So just groups of people all over the country have formed different, um, you know, integration groups and they're usually drop-ins. So you don't have to like commit to a series of things. They're often donation-based I know that the San Francisco Psychedelic Society hosts a slew of them. Um, there's the Aware Project uh, down in Southern California that has like a bunch. Um, I'm, they're in every region, um, as far as I know. Um, I'm California-based, so I only sort of pay attention to those. I know there's some BIPOC ones I've actually thought about joining a few times that are on the East Coast. <clears throat> you know, there's like identity-based ones. There's ones for um, trans folks or, you know, uh, gender non-conforming folks and they're, they're just everywhere. And I think it's, it's so important to have those um, because people are using these medicines, obviously outside of the therapeutic context, very few people are using them, you know, in a clinical trial, there's very few people doing that. So um, it would be, and very few people can afford, you know, an integration therapist, the price, the prices are high, you know, and many people don't have insurance. And so these groups are, are providing the exact, you know, communitas that you and I are speaking about. And I, I feel very, I feel like it's a beautiful sign. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that because I think that's such a, such a great tool for people who are, are using these outside of that, that realm. And that segues really well to, to um, uh, one of our final questions to wrap up here, but I would like to talk about, I know we've been talking about integration in varying degrees throughout this whole conversation, but I wonder if you could speak about it a little bit more um, and maybe from like the perspective of having, you know, a really beautiful, powerful experience, what would you recommend that people do in order to, um, for that psychedelic experience to actualize, to really show up in their lives, but also when people have negative experiences, you know, when it does bring up like this trauma that feels very difficult um, or something overwhelming for them. Yeah. What, what steps and what processes do you do you recommend to people? Yes. Such a big topic and so important. You know, I think again, I'm going <laughs> to not to be annoying, but integration, I think it just looks so different based on, you know, that exact person, the medicine that they used where they are in their healing journey, you know, like someone who's very early in that process, having a a big challenging experience versus someone who's further along in that process and having a challenging experience is going to be really different. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, obviously the specific life circumstances that they have, like their support systems, their their accessibility to things. And so there's, there's a lot there. Um, but I think just to start wide and then go narrow, maybe Um, when I think about integration, I think the first thing I do when I talk with folks is that I, 
you know, really try and, and get it, the message across that integration is the rest of your life. It's not a specific time period that has a start and an end, you know, it's not just the day after your dosing to the next dosing. It's, it's always right. And so, um, and it's not just limited to psychedelics. Like we're always reflecting and meaning making our experiences, you know, breakups, trauma, traveling to a new country, uh, a deep conversation with a loved one. All of these experiences sit in our consciousness and in our body and they stew over time. And so, you know, we, we may even revisit some of these experiences in our minds every now and then and like re-review what it meant, you know, to have it and what it meant about you and others in the world. So, you know, my first recommendation for folks is to think about psychedelic integration as not having an endpoint and that it's normal and good to spend our lives meaning making our experiences and really allowing the lessons to evolve over time. So really taking the pressure off <clears throat> to like have it be this nugget and this nugget now is like forever gold and done. And you've like, you know, you can check that off the list of things you've, you've come to know. And, um, but, you know, generally I think it's, integration can be fruit most fruitful when we you know when we when it involves both like this conscious sort of continued reflection um on on you know your experience and then this conscious continued reflection in relation with other people <clears throat> and that can be professionals those peer integration groups we we're talking about shamans you know or just in one's community with you know, within one's religious or spiritual community. Um, and so I think that combination tends to help keep those, um, I think Kyle Butler calls them cosmic seeds of wisdom. I love that phrasing. <laughs> helps keep the cosmic seeds of wisdom from the experience, you know, that were planted in the psyche. It helps keep them watered and fed and growing. And so that's true for positive and you know, to, to use just simple language right now, positive and challenging experiences. Um, and so, you know, asking questions of like, what does it mean for your day-to-day -day life that you became, you know, one with nature or that you went into a void and you were nothing, right? What does that mean? And, you know, what does it mean that you saw how beautiful your body actually was or that you better understood where your loved one is now? And so I think the practice of integrating um, is really just about, so as a therapist, it's about supporting the person to identify these seeds and seeing, you know, which they want to bring back with them to plant and to grow. And so, <clears throat> you know, I think if I were to advise somebody who had a positive experience, you know, on what to do, I would just encourage them to keep that alive in one way or another, write that down somewhere where it's visible and then continue to reflect on it in whatever way, you know, I think this is where creativity really comes in. <clears throat> um, just making it a creative process that's sort of constantly uh, involving like consciousness around it, you know, and really reflection. And, and the same is true with the challenging experience, you know, taking your time, being very gentle with yourself and reflecting on what it means for you and, and allowing that to also you know, to, to have breaks from that too. I think when we have a challenging experience, it's important that we sort of uh, titrate our nervous system a bit, right? We always want to 
touch in to things and then we want to take a break and then we want to touch in and then we take a break and and that's effective emotion regulation right so if someone's having a challenging experience i would i would encourage them to seek out these donation based integration groups and then get some support and then you know if obviously if they're in a place where maybe they're feeling a lot of deep fear and paranoia maybe something more than a peer integration group might be indicated you know reaching out to an integration therapist for for some you know, more heavy-handed support might be indicated, but from the therapist perspective, it's, it's really just like in therapy, it's just an ongoing creative process, you know, that involves really just trying to honor that person's innate healing capacity, um, and following their intuition and, you know, supporting them, just making links, um, linking their experiences to meanings. And so, you know, I'll, I'll strive to hold that space with curiosity and trust and, like you said, a lot of times people can have, you know, big emotions be available for the first time in years. Um, and so sometimes it's just about me bearing witness um, to those previously um, you know, disembodied feelings like deep grief or rage. Um, and other times, you know, we can, it can look pretty groovy, honestly, and we can get in some really creative spaces about what is consciousness and self or why are we here? And, you know, that can look like supporting people through open-ended questions with absolutely no agenda other than to just, you know, be explorers. And I think like one of the best parts of my job is that I get to prescribe, um, you know, watching archetypal films or shows like Star Wars or Harry Potter or even Sense and Sensibility. And so just, you know, really trying to support a person exploring their inner world and the larger cosmic fabric, which is pretty fun to do as a job. So, you know, but other times integration can look like trauma processing, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe the person feels ready and, and interested in telling the story, you know, there's, and how I interpret that is their innate healing wisdom is saying, I need this. I need to tell this story in order to get some sort of healing. And so, you know, maybe they're telling it and they've told it before, but this time it's in more detail than has ever been available, you know, and, or maybe they decide they want to tell others for the first time in their life. So part of integration can be, you know, supporting them and, and deciding, you know, how they want to tell it and how they'll take care of themselves and whatnot. So it's, it's just an unfolding creative process. And I think, you know, in line with what we were talking about, integration is, is always best done both on your own in reflection and in community. It's, it's both. Yes, yes, thank you. That's such a beautiful answer. And I'm also noticing almost this thread that's just flowing through the entire process of using psychedelics prior, during, after, but it's it's just taking a very fluid approach of conscious intention, but simultaneously surrender and letting the experience like flow through your life, maybe in this unpredictable way. So in the same way that you know you talked about experiencing the medicine. So Absolutely. Yeah. I think we, we control so much in our life and again, we're humans. That's what we do. That's all right. Uh, But I think we experience so much freedom when, when we just allow ourselves to be complex and cyclical and inflow and changing when we actually allow that, it feels so much better. Well, thank you so much. This has just been such an expansive conversation and I really appreciate your work and sharing all of your wisdom with us.
Yeah, of course. It's been great to chat with you, Emily. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.